Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It is said that for every mile of track of the Canadian Pacific Railway, there is one dead immigrant who helped build that line. The CPR was an important part of nation building, and after helping connect our nation coast to coast, Chinese and other Asian immigrants were labeled as job stealers, drug addicts, sources of sin, and told they were not wanted. For decades, they were not allowed to vote or bring their families here, as measures were put in place to stop Asian immigrants from reaching our shores. And in 1907, 9,000 rioters smashed windows and destroyed the shops and homes of Asian Canadians in Vancouver. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Immigration to the Pacific Northwest coast of what would become Canada began when workers from Asia sailed aboard the first exploration and trading ships to reach our shores. In 1788, Captain John Muir's expedition landed in Nootka Sound to establish a year-round settlement. At the time, the Pacific fur trade was highly profitable. Britain, Russia, and Spain all wanted to claim the Pacific coast for themselves. Mears hoped that by building a settlement, he could claim the region for Britain, and he built a dockyard, fort, and a ship he named the Northwest America. Feeling the venture was successful, Mears brought another 70 workers from Asia, but shortly after their arrival in 1789, the Spanish seized the area and imprisoned the men. It's not known what happened to them, but they hold the distinction as the first Asian immigrants in what would become Canada. Our story then jumps ahead 70 years to 1858, when the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush began in the newly created colony of British Columbia. As news of the gold spread around the world, a new life across the Pacific was enticing for many living in poverty in Asia. Chinese immigrants flocked to the colony of British Columbia to find their fortune in what was known as the North American Gold Mountain. In British Columbia's interior on the western edge of the Caribou Mountains and located approximately 750 kilometers northeast of Vancouver, there's Barkerville. Barkerville was founded in 1862 after a British prospector struck gold and became the richest and the most famous claim. Barkerville was founded in 1862 after a British prospector struck gold and became the richest and most famous claim of the area. William Billy Barker extracted two kilograms of gold in just a few hours. This was largely exaggerated, but regardless, news spread and the small town attracted people from all over the world, including a large number of Chinese explorers. A number of Chinese people found gold and made money, and Barkerville became one of the most prosperous gold rush towns. And at its peak, it had 5,600 inhabitants. 
half of whom were Chinese from California or who had migrated directly from China. By 1860, it was estimated that the Chinese population of Vancouver Island and British Columbia, then two separate colonies, was 7,000. Once the gold rush died down, so too did Chinese immigration. But then, a new opportunity for work sprang up. The Canadian Pacific Railway. In 1880, a man named Andrew Onderdonk was brought in as a contractor to build large sections of the British Columbia portion of the Canadian Pacific Railway. He had successfully done so in the United States where he used cheap Asian immigrant labour to save money and he was able to replace anyone who died from dangerous conditions easily. The Canadian government was eager to finish the CPR and British Columbia was by far the most difficult portion because of the mountainous and treacherous terrain. To meet the demand and complete the track on time, Onderdonk brought in workers from China and the United States. Each worker was hired to complete 320 kilometers of track and were paid 50% less than their white counterparts while working in much more dangerous conditions. They lived in simple tents and segregated work camps away from white workers. The meager accommodations were home in the hot summer and the cold winters. They had their own cooks and medical care was pretty much non-existent. From 1880 to 1885, 17,000 mostly Chinese workers completed the British Columbia section of the CPR. At least 700 workers were killed, but it's impossible to know for sure and it's likely that the number is much higher. And then as soon as the railroad was finished in 1885, Canada turned its back on those workers. The Chinese Immigration Act was passed mere months before the railroad was finished, putting a head tax, amounting to $50, on any Chinese immigrant coming to Canada. And when that didn't slow immigration, it was increased to $100 in 1900 and then $500 in 1903. The last increase was the equivalent of 10 years salary. This slowed the immigration which made many in the white population happy but some didn't think it went far enough to address Asian immigrants already in the country. At the turn of the 20th century there were roughly 16,000 Chinese immigrants living in British Columbia along with 8,000 Japanese and 5,000 South Asians who worked in a variety of industries including low paying and dangerous conditions in service, timber and fisheries. That's if they could even find employment. The Hastings Mill, a sawmill on the south shore of Burrard Inlet, became known as Otosuke Geisha, meaning Savior Company, as it was one of the few places that hired Japanese and Asian immigrants. By 1886, Asian and predominantly Chinese immigrants flocked to the area and a small Chinatown formed. It became not only the oldest in Canada, but also the largest. The white settlers in British Columbia were not happy about Asian immigrants working jobs that they felt should go to white workers. They labeled Asian residents as immoral and Chinatown was called a den of evil and sin. Asian immigrants were accused of getting white women addicted to opium and selling them into sexual slavery, with no evidence to support these allegations. What the white residents didn't realize was that the British Columbia capitalist upper class was using the division to keep wages low and to make money off the workers' backs, regardless of race. By pitting workers against each other, company owners ensured they were not a target if violence were to break out and they could pay the white workers less, as long as it was still slightly more than Asian workers. 
Despite the racism and discrimination, Vancouver's Chinatown developed and grew with a variety of shops, stores, homes, and more. In 1907, 11,440 new immigrants from Asia arrived in British Columbia. Because of the Chinese head tax, 1,266 immigrants came from China, while over 8,000 were from Japan, and 2,049 Sikhs made up the rest of those new to Canada. As the number of Asian immigrants increased in British Columbia, anti-Asian sentiment grew to a fever pitch, along with a moral panic, so to speak. Due to the cost of immigration, most immigrants from Japan and China were men. It was simply too expensive to bring an entire family over. Those who came to Canada often didn't see their spouse or children for years, decades, or more. Loneliness was something dealt with through gambling and the use of opium, and white residents felt this was immoral and worried it would spread. Of course, white residents conveniently forgot or ignored the immoral behavior of fellow white residents who drank, took drugs, or gambled. And as tensions grew, the scene was set, and soon a powder keg was lit in British Columbia, resulting in a major blow to the Asian population. Early in 1907, the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway asked Ottawa to allow 10,000 Japanese workers to come to Canada to build a line in northern BC. As news of the request spread by word of mouth, the number was inflated from 10,000 to 50,000, and there were claims the Japanese people would soon control Vancouver. Attorney General and future Premier of British Columbia, William Bowser, publicly opposed the request, as did other politicians in the province. White citizens banded together to stop what they saw as a takeover by Asian immigrants. On August 12, 1907, the Canadian chapter of the Anti-Asiatic League was formed in British Columbia. The League was supported by several prominent citizens, including Alexander Bethune, who was the city's mayor and co-founder of the organization. 400 white men joined after the first meeting, and they wasted no time in spreading their hate. At the organization's third meeting, members planned a parade for September 7th, which would travel to Vancouver City Hall, escorted by a band to draw as much attention as possible. City Hall was located between Chinatown and Japantown, and was suggested as a destination by Mayor Bethune and several city councillors. For the members of the League, the goal was simple. They wanted Asian immigration addressed and dealt with. Since the march was advertised in newspapers, it quickly became one of the biggest events the city of Vancouver had ever seen up to that point. 4,000 Canadians and Americans then marched while the band played Rule Britannia. As the march traveled, the crowd swelled to nearly 10,000 people, though some estimates say the mob was 30 to 50,000 strong. However, since Vancouver's total population was about 30 to 50,000 people, it's likely the 10,000 figure is more accurate. Upon reaching their destination, several speakers, including local religious leaders, addressed the crowd who inflamed the crowd against the perceived menace of opium on white women. One speaker referenced the Bellingham Riot. On September 4, 1907, 500 white men in Bellingham, Washington, gathered to drive a community of South Asian migrant workers out of the city. The rioters pulled men out of their workplaces and homes and rounded up 200 or so South Asian immigrant workers in the basement of City Hall. Within 10 days, the entire South Asian population departed town. In fact, several Chinese citizens of that community, 40 kilometers south of the border, fled to Vancouver. Little did they know, they were walking straight into another violent situation. 
And as that speaker praised the Bellingham riot, glass from a store window in nearby Chinatown was shattered. A teenager threw the first rock, and that was a spark to the growing powder cake. Almost immediately, the mob turned towards Chinatown, and mayhem ensued. People threw bottles and rocks through shattered windows, hell-bent on destroying all the stores and homes of the predominantly Chinese population in the area. And they were successful. It was reported that every single window in Chinatown was destroyed by the rioters. But at the same time, the mob's actions backfired. Most of the owners and landlords of the buildings in Chinatown were white. Once the mob destroyed Chinatown, they turned their attention towards Japantown. As the rioters marched like an army, they were met by armed Japanese residents who saw the neighboring destruction of Chinatown and were not about to be caught unprepared. They set up barricades to prevent the rioters from getting in, but that didn't push away the angry mob as they pressed forward in four separate attacks over the next day and a half. Each time, the rioters were pushed back by Japanese residents, but in the process, over 50 stores and businesses in Japantown were vandalized. To deal with the mounting violence, all 24 off-duty police officers were called, along with the fire brigade. They were hopelessly outmatched by the angry crowd and did little to stop the violence. The mob then turned towards the Punjabi area of the city, believing it would be an easy target. You know how bullies think they can get away with oppressing others until suddenly they find someone who defeats them handedly? Well, that's what happened when the white rioters descended upon the predominantly Punjabi neighborhood. Many of those residents came to Canada after they retired from the British Army, where they had served in the Sikh and Punjabi regiments for years. And as the rioters attacked, they quickly found out that not only were the residents far more skilled in hand-to-hand -hand combat than they were, but they still had their service muskets and bayonets, or at the very least, ceremonial daggers and swords in hand. It didn't take long for white rioters to flee, barely escaping injury. Meanwhile, skirmishes continued for two days as many Asian residents were left to pick up the pieces of their shattered businesses and homes. On September 9th, the Vancouver Daily World published the racist headline, Orientals by Arms. Below that, hundreds of Asiatics purchased rifles, revolvers, and knives. Then buried in much smaller font on the front page, the newspaper wrote, Demonstration against Asiatics terminates in anti-Oriental riot. Mob of boys and young men sweeps through Chinese and Japanese quarters, smashing windows. The article about the riot portrayed the violent mob as just a few bad apples and listed just a mere 20 to 30 people out of the 10,000 who were to blame. The Vancouver Daily World wanted to frighten people and pit them against the Asian population before briefly explaining why the Asian population may have needed weapons to protect themselves. But even then, it portrayed those arming themselves as overreacting to the small threat of a few and not the violence of thousands. Not knowing if their homes and businesses were going to be attacked again, Japanese and Chinese residents patrolled their neighborhoods. They also held a general strike, refusing to open their stores or work at the local sawmills and fisheries. The Daily World wrote, Chinese stoicism has given way to complete and angry agitation. Domestic servants and homes and clubs failed to turn up for duty. Sawmills are minus their Chinese crews and the Mongolian car cleaners and yard gangs are discussing racial eruptions in Canton Alley and Shanghai Street. Vancouver quickly stopped all weapons sales and began to find and arrest Asian residents who carried weapons, even if they were using them for self-defense. 
In response to the continued oppression, Japanese residents marched to a public meeting on Powell Street to demand reparations from the city. Mayor Bethune told them that he would address their concerns. The irony of the co-founder of the Anti-Asiatic League telling Japanese residents he would address their concerns was not lost on me and probably not lost on the audience in attendance either. As news spread around Canada, various newspapers and officials gave their opinions of the riot. Robert McPherson, Member of Parliament for Vancouver, publicly stated that, quote, British Columbia must be a white man's country and all Asian immigration had to stop. He sent a telegram to Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier to that effect. The Toronto Globe wrote an editorial condoning the violence against the Asian population, stating, quote, Canadian institutions, conditions, and standards must be shown worthy of being preserved from the deteriorating influence of foreign admixtures. End quote. Overseas, the London Daily Mail praised the Japanese population in hopes of keeping good relations between Britain and Japan, while stating that such prejudice against the Chinese population was rare in Canada. A few days after the riot, the Canadian government made a quick apology to the Japanese government. At the time, Japan was a British ally and thus by extension a Canadian one too. And Canada wanted to increase trade with Japan, so they blamed Americans from Bellingham, Washington who came to Canada to start a riot in Vancouver. In the aftermath, Federal Labour Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King was appointed to conduct a royal commission on the riot. King would eventually become Canada's longest-serving Prime Minister for over 21 years. Another fact about King? In 1923, two years after he first became Prime Minister, he enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act that restricted all Chinese immigration to Canada, which remained in place until May 14, 1947, the year before King resigned as Prime Minister. He was not a fan of Asian immigrants, and in the end, the Commission compensated the Chinese Canadian community for $26,000 for damages, and $9,000 went to Japanese Canadians. The compensation for Japanese Canadians came quickly due to pressure from Japan. For Chinese Canadians, they waited months to receive any money. Of the 10,000 people who caused damages, three were charged and only one was convicted. And that rioter wasn't convicted for attacking Chinese or Japanese residents, but because he punched a police officer. On January 25, 1908, Canada took another step in response to the race riot, and it may not surprise you to know that it was a rather unfair response. Through an informal agreement with Japan, Canada banned immigration from the country. Under the agreement, only 400 laborers and domestic servants would be allowed to immigrate. However, it didn't take long to find a loophole in the agreement. Japanese citizens could come to Canada if they went to Hawaii first because the island nation didn't fall under Japanese jurisdiction and they could then migrate from Hawaii without a problem. To close that loophole, the federal government created the Continuous Journey Regulation in 1908. This required that all immigrant ships coming to Canada make one continuous journey. Now this wasn't an issue for those coming from Europe, but Asian immigrants always stopped in Hong Kong or Hawaii to restock supplies and fuel before crossing the rest of the Pacific. This created a de facto restriction on Asian immigration to Canada. And at the time, immigrants from India were actually British subjects and part of the British Empire, but they were also restricted. From 1908 until the 1940s, South Asian immigration to Canada did not exceed 80 people per year. 
1908, British Columbia passed a law preventing all South Asian men from voting in provincial elections. And since eligibility for federal elections came from provincial voting lists, this meant South Asians would be unable to vote in federal elections. And as for the Asiatic Exclusion League, it went dormant after the 1907 riot but returned in the early 1920s. Some estimates put its membership in 1921 at 40,000, but thankfully it died by the 1930s. An investigation into the riot also led to the first official anti-drug law in Canadian history. As part of the report by William Lyne Mackenzie King, opium use was banned because white residents were becoming addicted due to supposed Asian peddlers. And if you think anti-Asian hate ended when immigration restrictions were lifted, well, sadly, that's not the case. Anti-Asian hate has never gone away, and things escalated during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Asian population of Canada and across the world was subjected to verbal and sometimes physical abuse because of the outbreak. In 2021, there were 943 reports of racist incidents against Asian Canadians, and that was up 47% over the year before. These figures came from a study by the Chinese Canadian National Council Toronto Chapter and Project 1907 which is a reference to the year the riot took place in Vancouver. Between 2020 and 2021, there was a 42% increase in Asian Canadians being spat on or coughed at, a 348% increase in workplace discrimination, a 187% increase in denial of service, and a 119% increase in robbery or theft. These facts and figures are important because behind them are not numbers, but people affected by discrimination and hate and something we need to keep in mind. In response, the federal government announced an investment of $85 million over four years for a new anti-racism strategy and the first-ever action plan on combating hate. And I hope we can do our part to stem the racist tide and prevent a repeat of September 1907 from ever happening again. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Anti-Asiatic Riot of 1907. Next week, we're looking at the Edmonton Tornado of 1987. Information from CBC Canada's History, British Columbia, and Untold History, White Riot, Wikipedia, Wilfrid Laurier University, BC Labour Heritage Centre, The Conversation, Vancouver Daily World, and the Library and Archives Canada. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.